One of the surprise cinematic hits of 2016 was the heart-wrenching coming-of-age drama Moonlight, which of course won Best Picture at this year's Oscars in unforgettable circumstances. Written and directed by the fabulous Barry Jenkins, Moonlight presents three stages in the life of the main character, Chiron, as he struggles to deal with his sexuality and challenging social circumstances. It was beautifully scored by Nicholas Bertel, who I'm delighted to say is my latest guest on Soundtracking, our weekly podcast about screen music with me, Edith Bowman. On the face of it, Nicholas's compositions follow orchestral conventions. However, scratch beneath the surface and one discovers all sorts of sonic tricks, including a technique borrowed from hip-hop called Chopped and Screwed, in which the original piece of music is simply slowed down, bent and overlaid to create something that sounds altogether different. Plenty then for us to discuss. Nicholas, it's a pleasure to have you become part of our sound tracking Thank family. Thank you so much. Congratulations, Thank first you. of all, on, on Moonlight and, and the response that that film has had all over the world. And we were just talking as we were coming into the studio about Barry Jenkins and yes. what a wonderful gentleman that he is. Let's start with Moonlight, if that's okay, and in terms of how you came to work on that project and what the asks were of you from Barry and, and what that collaboration was between the two of you. Thank you again for having me here. This is really, I'm honored to be here. Uh, I was scoring The Big Short in 2015, and uh, I yeah, had an amazing experience on that. And Jeremy Kleiner and Dee Dee Gardner from Plan B were the producers of that film. And uh, during that year, um, one night I was having dinner with Jeremy, and he actually got very emotional telling me about a script that he had read uh, that he was working on. It was called Moonlight. Mm. And he said, you know, would you like to read it? So uh, I said, absolutely. And I read it, and I was just blown away by it. I thought it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever read. And I said, you know, could I meet Barry? <laughs> <laughs> and so he connected us, and Barry and I, um, we got together uh, for coffee, actually, in downtown Los Angeles. And uh, we ended up having coffee and a couple glasses of wine and just had this amazing, wide-ranging conversation you know, about music and, and films and life and everything. And that was the beginning of our conversation about about the film and about possibly collaborating together yeah and I think what was so exciting from right away was that it felt like both of us had a similar sense of what the musical possibilities for Moonlight were yeah and I think that's one of the really exciting things about film music and composing for, for movies and working with directors is you know every film is its own kind of adventure you don't know what's going to work in the beginning. You don't have, you know, you have your your instincts, your initial feelings and intuitions, but it's that collaboration with the director that is the essence of the whole process. And so I think one of the things that's so crucial is a sense of openness at the very beginning and excitement about, you know, going on this journey together and finding things. So I think both of us were excited right away.
I mean, it was such a short shooting period. It's mm -hmm. insane when you think about it. Were, were you involved in that process? Were you part of that in terms of, you know, seeing how and what he was shooting and, and kind of taking that back in terms of what you would create for score? You know, interestingly, um, not really. I read the script and I talked to Barry and we had conversations before they shot the film. Yeah. And then my next encounter with the project was after they shot yeah. and seeing an early cut of the film. And that's always such a fascinating thing, too, because it's always remarkable to me the, the way in which, you know, your perceptions of things from the script stage change or don't change yeah. when you see the early cuts of the film. Basically, one of the first things I felt when I read the script was this, it just had this feeling of poetry. There was an intimacy and a sensitivity to the script. And what was amazing to me was the way in which Barry brought that feeling into the film that he created. And the film, it, it feels like this beautiful poem. Among the first things I sent to Barry, actually, after some of our early conversations, I wrote this piece, Piano and Violin Poem. That's what I called it because I was trying to channel that feeling of poetry that I had yeah. from the script. That became Little's theme. What was interesting was there's this sort of intangible like alchemy I feel with with film music where you know again you have to try things out and yeah. when when we put it up against the picture it just felt like it was part of that world yeah. somehow so the final piece of the jigsaw almost. exactly it just happens and and I think so much of it is following those feelings and and trusting those feelings but again it's that collaboration that's so essential because I can do my best but until a director also feels that way and we and we and we feel it together. Yeah. Until that happens you don't really know. And when we first spoke about how we were going to work together, you know, I said to Barry it'd be awesome if you could come to New York a lot and come to my studio cuz I live in in Manhattan. Yeah. And he did. It was amazing. He would come to New York, and we would work for days on end in my studio. We would just wow. we would like order Shake Shack and just sort of like you know <laughs> watch the movie and yeah. and try things out. And um, would you play live along whilst you were kind of you know, watching it and going, "What about this?" And, exactly. I would, oh, wow. I would I would play for right in front of him, and I would you know I have lots early on. It's a mixture of things early on because when I sent him the piano and violin poem, yeah. I had actually had Tim Fain, the incredible violinist, who's a dear friend of mine. He performs in the score. I had had Tim come by because I wanted Barry to hear that idea already with a real violin. I didn't want to do sort of a mock-up. I wanted it actually to be a real recording of yeah. this. But at the same time, for larger scope pieces, you're always going to use some sample sounds and demo kind of stuff. Yeah. So I would do some of that in front of Barry. And what was great was we could try things out where I'd say, well, what if we totally change it? Or, you know, here's a crazy idea. What if we do this? You know? And that's the fun. Yeah. Um, because when you're in the same room and when you're hearing the same things and when you know you're looking at the same things, there's a immediacy, yeah. I think, uh, yeah. that if you tried to do those things over email would take 
yeah. a month and you know they can take five minutes in the same room and you also get that energy of someone else watching and experiencing it at the same time exactly which is so crucial you just feel things yeah and you can talk about things and you can experiment and so many things came from that actually like for example um i actually would experiment by taking production sounds and weaving them into the music that i was writing and actually using them as as musical elements so wow. um when you see sharon look in chapter two of the film looking into the mirror over the sink, yeah. um, you hear this kind of like air rushing sound. And that sound is actually the sound of Little in chapter one pouring water into the bathtub that I took the sound and stretched it out. And so you have this almost like sonic memory that he has. Oh my gosh. And then you hear a hi-hat, like a drum, this very insistent rhythm. Yeah. And that sound is actually the last time Kevin and Sharon high-fived before all this tragedy had happened. Oh my, this is an so underlying hidden kind like of, a sim- yeah. Like a sort of like a symbolic correspondence. Mm. the type of things where I think you know if you try to write that in an email like hey I have this idea (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that but but Barrett you know what was so amazing was I would say hey here's this kind of crazy idea and he and he would say well show show me let's see it and we would try some of these things out and I think what was so exciting was not only were we able to do that together there Mm. but Barrett was so excited to explore these things and I think when that's possible then anything's possible and then you find things together that you might never have otherwise found yeah in the way that the moonlight is structured and the fact that it's almost like three mini films within a film sort of thing when you were thinking and working on the the score for it was there an idea that there would be specific differences between each of those acts and those thematic things that come and go that sort of breathe in and out of the film as well absolutely it was definitely something that we thought a lot about because of the three-part structure i think it's a question of how do you allow for cohesion between the chapters while also allowing for a transformation because little is becoming Sharon is is black you know in chapter three and it's one man and his journey but at the same time he is changing Some of these things, I think, are things you find along the way. Mm. So, for example, Little's theme, that piano and violin poem, for me, felt like it was a way into Little's point of view in the very beginning. And then this idea of how we were going to evolve it, in some of the first conversations I had with Barry, he talked about his love of chopped and screwed music, which is... Oh, I know about You know about about chopped and screwed. He told me all about chopped and screwed. The Fleetwood Mac, chopped and screwed, dreams is phenomenal.
Robin like, Scrood's amazing. Yeah. Like, it's Did you whole... know about it before he told you about so it? So I had been in a hip hop band, so I had actually done a lot of audio experimentation and production work, yeah. but I hadn't had any direct familiarity yeah. with, with Chopped and Screwed itself. And uh, when I started talking to Barry about it, immediately I knew what to do, just because yeah. I had done sort of similar things yeah. in parallel. Yeah. Um, but what was fun was when he told me about his passion for it, basically we had this idea of what if we did that to the score, to the instrumental classical score, because I think Barry... Barry knew early on and felt that he wanted an instrumental score. So I don't think that was a mystery in that sense. I yeah. think. But at the same time, the way in which that would evolve, that was just our following our feelings and, and seeing where it took us. And again, the chop and screw idea, you know, I would write music, I would fully record the music, yeah. and then as a second part of the process, I would chop and screw my own recordings that I had just <laughs> made. And again, that's one of those things where on paper, it sounds cool, but you don't know if it's going to work yeah. in the movie yeah. until you put it up against the picture. And what was amazing was that it did work and it felt like it was so much a part of the movie. And it was subtle. It wasn't something that was obvious in a lot of ways. It was really woven into the nature of the way that the pieces evolved. For example, Little's theme in Chapter 1. In Chapter 2, we call it Chiron's theme. And it's actually the audio elements from chapter one that are bent lower. So I could have replayed those pieces. Uh, I could have replayed the piano, could have re-recorded the violin in a lower key. Yeah. But there's a sort of timbre to the sound. Yeah. There's like a intangible something. Yeah. It's just different when you actually just bend the audio. loves in particular about Chopped and Screwed is when you slow a track down in Chopped and Screwed music, the pitch goes down and you get this really deepened and enriched audio texture. Yeah. And he talks about how, for example, like when you slow a song down, the lyrics, the words are bigger. You yeah. Know? So it almost makes you focus on things in a it's deeper, like more... Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, there's like a physicality yeah. that you feel. And what was amazing was when we did this to some of the classical instruments, first of all, you get sonic ranges like it's a lower sub range so you get you know you can turn cellos into these really bassy things and the basses play really low so you get this rumble yeah. uh, which you know classical music doesn't always have <laughs> yeah, yeah. and we love that sound Like in the end credits suite, there's a piece that I wrote there which has the version of the music live. And then while it's playing, there's an exact duplicate of the track screwed down really low. So as it evolves, you're hearing this sort of low 
rumbling. And as the track evolves, the, the original recording starts to fade down and the screwed version is sort of the up. only thing present. So you're hearing that. Mm. And I have this subwoofer in my studio that <laughs> was doing a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> and it, but it was, it was really, it just felt great when we yeah. were putting it together. And it just felt like it worked. You know, there are always things that feel somehow part of the film yeah. um, and that became a technique that we utilized so I would do that with individual instruments I would do it with entire pieces where I would take whole recordings and, and bend them and, and edit them and chop them and then I would do it um, with sounds too like with the bathtub water yeah. kind of sounds so it was a it was a range of things that we would experiment with Makes it even more harder for you to do live. <laughs> to do the, well, exactly. well, so that was the, that was actually a big a big thing was how do you do this live? Yeah. And we anyone ever done chopped and screwed live? So I don't can't know. Be done? I don't know. It, well, because one of the interesting things is when you are playing live instruments, they make a sound right away. Mm. So you have to figure out how do you do this because you can't have the audience hear of sound of a violin and then have it. Yeah. Not hear it and hear yeah, it. Pitch it exactly. Yeah, yeah. So what we did was we actually did a variety of things. For example, if there was a violin that I had screwed down so it sounded like a bass, yeah. I would have a bass play it live. Right. And then, okay, for example, yeah. there's a, a piece I wrote called Middle of the World, which is the piece that plays during the swimming sequence in the movie. Oh, it's kind of, almost like a violin incredible. concerto kind of a piece. And Tim performs those virtuosic arpeggios. actually in the movie there's a, a sequence with Paula in the hallway mm -hmm. with Little afterwards so I had taken the stem of that violin arpeggio cadenza and taken a raw take of it not as perfect a take as is in the swimming sequence yeah and then I took that recording and I bent it down so it's lower, and it's in a key that a violin actually can't play all the notes. And then I wrote this piece called The Spot around that. So we're linking the elements, but it's bent.
question was, you know, how do you do that? Live? <laughs> because, so what we actually do is we bought, I, I bought an electric violin yeah. for Tim, and we tuned this thing down a fourth. So what Tim does live is he plays the swimming scene, yeah. and then he picks up this other violin that's pre-tuned Tuned, down yeah. and bent, and he plays the other piece there. You walked Technically, your money, we really, yeah, 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 yeah. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to do this. <laughs> it was not, it was not obvious how to do this. <laughs> It's amazing to get the chance to do a score live. One of the things about films is that they're all made before the fact, in a sense. You know, they're all made. And and the closest, in some ways, that you get to a live experience with a film, I think, is the moment of its release. So, for example, for us, in a way, maybe that was Telluride Film Festival, where it was the first time we were really sharing the film with an audience. You know, so there's that feeling of, it almost feels a little like a performance, because you're bringing, there's an audience, you're sharing something for the first time. But performing the score live... It's, it's such a heightened experience because we made a, a print of the movie with the score completely removed. So uh, we are providing all of yeah. those elements and uh, we're creating it there. So there's this sense of it's, it's being made anew. But at the same time, I want it to feel like a seamless experience. You know, we, we don't want it to feel like yeah, yeah, <laughs> something yeah. different. Yeah. You know, I think the goal is that for the audience that it feels like they're watching the movie, yeah. but it's like maybe somehow kind of alive. <laughs> heightened. The emotions yeah. are definitely heightened by that yeah. live experience. Like you were talking earlier about, you know, that, that live thing and being in the room and it happening in front of you. It's, exactly. It's a different experience than... Exactly. Than, um, so I, I wish I'd been yeah. able to come. Mm. You must do many more of them, please do, because that would just be fantastic. Uh, it was, it was very memorable. <laughs> How did you get into to working in films and composing for films? I always loved film music. Actually, uh, the first music that really inspired me when I was a kid, I saw Chariots of Fire, and I loved that theme so yeah. much that I went over to our old upright piano in our apartment and I tried to figure it out. So, awesome. How so old were you? About five. Wicked. Yeah, so, that, so in some ways, film music has been with me from very early on.
I always loved film music, and I was trained as a classical pianist. I thought for a while, you know, would I be a concert pianist? Is that something I would do? But I also explored a lot of other music. Um, I did some jazz in high school, and I actually had a hip-hop band in college. And it was in college that I first started scoring films. Yeah. You know, because one of the things with being a film composer is you can't be a film composer without a movie. Yeah. <laughs> so you, someone has to have it's a film. A they, they, yeah, they, yeah, exactly. You need a film. So, <laughs> so I had a friend who was making, uh, my, a dear friend, Nick Lavelle, who was making a film in college, uh, like a feature film for you know, $10,000. Yeah. And uh, one day he just said, would you, uh, would you like to try scoring the, mo the movie? And I ended up writing like three hours of orchestral music for this movie, which in point of fact never got released. <laughs> but it was so much fun, actually. And I realized just how many possibilities there were with film music. And I really get this joy from those discoveries of when, mm. when things come together. There's this magical kind of thing that happens where, um, for me, the music, if it works in the right way, it can unlock a scene. It can unlock part of the feeling of a movie. Yeah. But at the same time, I think movies can unlock elements of music. For me, sometimes... You know, if I hear music in a film, it's even more powerful than if I hear it outside of a film. You know what I mean? There's yeah. something about that interaction that Definitely. is very fascinating. And there's sometimes as well that when both score but also contemporary music, when certain tracks are used in a film, sometimes the first thing you think about is the scene in the film that it's used in rather than the band or the artist that have sung the song. Absolutely. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. And, and I think that's one of the really interesting things. It's those associations those new connections that music and picture make. It's interesting too, because you know, I mentioned memories before with Chiron, but I think one of the interesting things is like films, there's this interesting almost like hour and a half to two hour period where you kind of create new memories. The ways in which the ideas, for example, in a score are linked and come back or evolve. You know, sometimes if, if an idea comes back later in a film, you feel almost like a microcosm of like a memory yeah. because you've you've seen something earlier you know so films are these kind of cool metaphors for like stories in our lives and 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 the feelings of living <laughs> was used in 12 Years a Slave as well, Steve McQueen's film as well, which is a wonderful film. That was an incredible opportunity, working with Steve McQueen. I mean, he's unbelievable. You know, I was so honored to get that chance to collaborate with him, and I wrote and researched and arranged the on-camera music in the film, so I worked on the musical performances, the violin performances, the uh, the dances, the spiritual, the field songs, so yeah. worked all very closely with Steve on all of that. Yeah. It's like almost been given an assignment in a way. And it was fascinating too because I think, you know, one of the amazing things, it's, it was the 1840s for 12 Years a Slave and uh, there are no recordings from the 1840s. So in addition to doing the research and figuring out what would people likely have played, you know, what would, what would an African-American violinist uh, have played in yeah. New York State in 1841?
That's one question. And then what is the sound of this music too? You know, what is the sound of music in the South in the 1840s? And those are the questions where we would do a huge amount of research, but then we would also say to ourselves, well, at a certain point, there's an element of artistic reimagining too, because we literally will never actually know what did that violin sound like or what did those singers sound like. So that was the exciting thing too. And I think Steve and I were able to come to a place where, again, you know, it felt like it was part of the texture of the film. Yeah. And Steve has incredible instincts you know he would guide me with things and when things were right he immediately would know went down to the river jordan where john baptized three when i walked the devil in hell said johnny baptize me i say roger and roll roger and roll my soul Producing as well, and you were a producer on the the short for Whiplash, which then yeah. you were yep. one of the co-producers on the feature film exactly. and stuff as well. Yeah, and that's a great example of a film where I didn't know anything about jazz and wasn't really into jazz, but from that film, I kind of had a, had a real respect for it as a genre of music as well. I thought that was an amazing film, and I remember um, I was so impressed with Damien. For me, it was so interesting getting the opportunity to work as a producer on something because film is such a collaborative form, like we were yeah. talking about, and. I think one of the opportunities, if there, if you can have these opportunities, to learn about as many parts of the filmmaking process yeah. as possible. Yeah. I feel I've learned so much from trying out different things, and I think it helps me as a composer when I can sort of put myself in the shoes of a producer and say, well, what are they, what are they thinking right now? What are the needs for X, Y, or Z? So getting a chance almost to to you know sit in a different chair on a film and and learn was really very, very helpful. In terms of of looking at the wide spectrum of of types of films that you've worked on, do you think about genre when you're thinking about the type of music that is right for that film? Does that ever come into the conversation or do you try and completely stay away from that? It's a really good question. I feel, you know, you mentioned the word almost like an assignment. Like, I feel each movie is its own interesting set of questions and an adventure. Mm. And I don't think it's obvious at all in the beginning what the musical landscape of a movie should be. And actually, you know, Chariots of Fire is an interesting example of that because, you know, you have this this movie set in the 1920s, the Olympics, and yet the score is a synthesizer 1980s score, <laughs> which at no point, at least for me, at no point in watching the film does it ever seem incongruous yeah. in any way. Mm-hmm. It actually feels perfect. Yeah. It feels inevitable that that is actually exactly the right sound. <laughs> and I think that in some ways, maybe that's a... a 
artistic goal on a film is to find something that feels musically that it's part of the fabric of the movie and that it, that it feels seamless and it's not always the thing that, that on paper seems obvious like you could have done a period score for Chariots of Fire but I don't think it would have had the same power and I think there was something about the the music that Vangelis wrote and the soundscape he had that gave it a new perspective that wasn't obvious at all yeah So with each movie, I think genre is interesting just in the sense that it has certain, there are certain connotations of different genres, but on a musical level, I don't really like to think about genre that yeah. much because I think genres are really arbitrary and actually in some ways don't really exist. Yeah. They're just there to simplify talking about music yeah, yeah. But what's interesting is there are subtle tweaks that you can make to different types of music. With a subtle change, they can become immediately a different genre, which almost shows you that everything is very interlinked. Yeah. I grew up about eight miles away from the beach where the scene in Charts of Fire in St. Andrews. Oh my God. West Sands in St. Andrews. So I've done that. Uh, yeah, running that down, running down the, the beach. Theme. I've the done theme it. that inspired me to <laughs> learn the piano. <laughs> Next time you're back in the UK, you need to go to West Sands in St. Andrews oh my and God. you can do that. I'll make a pilgrimage there. Yeah, yeah I have definitely. to. No, I, was, I, that scene, I think that scene is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Are there other composers and films specifically that have stuck with you or that you've been inspired by? You mentioned Charts of Fire, obviously, being a big one. Yeah. There are so many, actually. I mean, I think um, there are so many films that when you watch a lot of movies, I mean, obviously, the legends like John Williams, uh, I grew up, I love Danny Elfman, Bernard Herrmann. I love, speaking of Prisoner, you know, working on the Kozlovsky films, which I think are amazing. There's so many sound worlds that I think are yeah. beautiful, and you know, there's some films that 
there's that musical storytelling connection that is sort of hard to even explain yeah. what exactly yeah. <laughs> what is so powerful it's, about it's it because but it's, it's there, physical yeah. it is absolutely it is it's and it's and i think that when it works it works at a very deep unconscious level there's that feeling when you walk out of a theater and the world feels a little different yeah. You know, and I think in some ways the music for me, I mean, obviously I'm a musician, so maybe I feel I'm very, I'm very conscious of some of this. But, but yeah, I think those things, there's a very sort of powerful emotional residue of a film when it when those things are closely connected. Yeah. Please come back whenever you're in town and we chat because there's there's, you know, there's so much to come. But also just in terms of, you know, we've only kind of scratched the surface, really. It's an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you again. Hello, stranger. It seems so good to see you back again. How long has it been? Seems like a mighty long time. Seems like a mighty long time. From the soundtrack to Moonlight, that's Hello Stranger by Barbara Lewis, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with composer Nicholas Bertel. Huge thanks to Nicholas for taking the time to talk to us. Moonlight is out on home entertainment formats now, with his score available via our good friends at Lakeshore Records. Make sure you see and hear both. Head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes with guests including Derek Cianfance, Andrea Arnold, Ben Wheatley and Ron Howard. You can subscribe there too or at iTunes and please do follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. Next up, talking about his brand new film, Baby Driver. It's part two of Edgar Wright. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. (laughs) 